in some really uncertain times, don't we? And it can be a little unnerving if we slow down long enough to be honest with ourselves. Before 2020, most most of us had some level of predictability about the flow of our life. Now, don't get me wrong, there's always been things like car crashes and cancers and things that would throw off that general predictability, but, but, but for the most part, parents and grandparents didn't expect to outlive their children and their grandchildren. There, there was kind of a natural progression of the way life was going, and, and for every successive generation, things seemed to be getting better than the previous generation. Now, I talk to a lot of different people during the week, and as, as cases have been rising, and more people that directly know people that have been affected by death and loss, the general feeling that I get is, is kind of an, an unnerving and, 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 a, and an anxiety that's developing in our culture. And... and there are some of us who have always been anxious. I, I'm talking about more of a general level of anxiety. We're, we're just so uncertain about so many things. Um, as I read the news and I follow everything to try to figure out how, as a pastor, to do everything I can to keep our people as safe as possible, I often walk away from the research going, we don't know anything. If there's anything we know, it's that, that we don't really know anything. And for many Americans, this is, this is the first real day of trouble that this generation has had to face. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 20. And in this psalm, the nation of Israel is also facing a day of trouble. And while the circumstances are different the application is just as practical or is just as applicable to us today as it was the day that this psalm was written for the nation of Israel. And before we read the psalm together, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that I think will help us um, unlock this psalm. Let me, let me give you three keys to kind of help you as you read through Psalm 20 and as we read through it as a church to get the most out of it. The first important key to interpreting Psalm 20 correctly is to notice the subject of the psalm. In other words, who is this psalm for? Who is it written for? Well, who's being addressed in verse 1? It says, verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The psalm begins by making the congregation sing. Remember, all of the psalms are songs of praise, songs of lament, songs to sing during worship, right? They're not just chapters in our Bible. They are part of the holy songbook that would have been sang in the temple, and there was a reason for singing each one of those songs. And so in verses 1 through 5, 
The psalm begins and, and it makes the congregation sing. So one through five is, is the whole congregation, the whole nation of Israel singing. And who are they singing to? Well, verse six says it's the Lord's anointed. And verse nine tells us that the people are speaking to the king himself. The, the you there, may the Lord answer you. The you there is not the people, but the king. Their focus is on the king. The people are praying for their king. That, that, that God would answer the king's prayer. Not their prayer, but the king's prayer. And so written by David, possibly for use as, as a worship service prior to some great battle, before he goes out to, to you know, fight in a war, for the nation of Israel, this song was crafted and was written so that the, the congregation, the nation of Israel, could sing for their king. They, they could pray for their king. And the focal point of Psalm 20 is not directly on God's blessing for everyone in the congregation. right? That's not the focus of this psalm. The focus of this psalm is rather on their anointed king. They want God to bless the king. They're not saying bless us directly, bless him, answer his prayers, right? And in Jewish tradition of, of interpreting Psalm 20, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The great king that descended from David, whom David prefigured, right? David was, was a picture of this greater king that would come from the line of David and would be God's anointed, God's Savior, God's Messiah. Verse 6 even can be translated, Now I know the Lord saves His Messiah. Anointed one means Messiah. The Lord saves His Messiah. So Psalm 20, it's not just a song by David, about David. It's a song about a future king. A song of God's Old Testament people looking forward to the coming of Christ, their Messiah, and praying for God's blessing upon him in his day of trouble. Now, that's the first key. So understanding that this song is ultimately a song about Jesus. The second key to understanding this song is to notice the structure. And I mentioned that a little bit already. But it, just imagine this, this worship service it's the night before a battle. All of the nation of Israel is gathered around the temple, and they are praying out to God. They're making sacrifices to God, right? They're, they're doing all of these things before they go out into battle. And, and the people are gathered, and they're praying with urgency and concern. In verses 1 through 5, they sing out their prayer for the king in the day of trouble. Notice that the we, the people, are praying for you, the king, to him, the Lord. But then, in verse 6, all the pronouns change. You see that in verse 6? They, they, they shift. There's a, there's a change in verse 6. And previously, the we are the speakers, the congregation. But now in verse 6, I singularly is used. There's one single person responding in verse 6. One voice. Possibly it was a priest. 
but it also could have been David himself. It could have been the king himself responding to those first five verses that we see in this psalm, singing a response that is filled with faith and confidence. And at that point, with the sacrifices and the offerings that are mentioned in verse 3, they would have been laid upon the altar. And as the smoke ascends, this singular voice, the, the priest or the king says, in light of the sacrifices made, now we have confidence that God will hear and answer. And so the last part of this psalm, the last structural pieces seven through nine the plurals the first person plurals they all kick back in they all come back the congregation takes up singing once again but they do so now joining that one verse or that one person in verse six right and they're joining their voices with what that that faith and that confidence that they see with the person who is speaking in verse six not with words of urgent prayer, longing for God to answer, but now with words that have that same confidence and assurance. So when we go through this, and we read this in just a second, it's a short little psalm, but, but I want you to see that structure. I want you to see that shift. It begins with the congregation praying for the king, but then there's that one verse in the middle that, that acts kind of like a pivot in verse 6 where a singular voice breaks in, expressing the assurance, God, their assurance in God for victory for the king. And after that, everything changes. The tone completely shifts at that point. And after that, the congregation takes up the song once again. They all join voices with a robust confidence in their God. And that brings me to the last key to understanding this song. There is a core principle at work in Psalm 20 that, that really serves as, as a key unlocking its full meaning. And here's, here's that core concept. Here's that core principle. As goes the king, so goes the people. As goes the king, so goes the people. In other words, what happens to the king happens to the people. This is what David understood when he wrote Psalm 20. This is what the people understood who first sang Psalm 20. It, it's for the success and victory of the king in their day of trouble, whatever that was, that they are praying for because they know that his victory will ultimately mean their victory. His success will be their success. His salvation out of the day of trouble, will mean their salvation out of the day of trouble. But this isn't just true on the earthly plane of King David. It's also true of David's future heir. You see, our great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, fought that battle on the spiritual and eternal plane. And what's true for him is true for us. His victory is our victory. His salvation is our salvation. This, this is the core principle that is at play in Psalm 20. And it makes Psalm 20 one of the most beautiful psalms to me in the book of Psalms. 
He fought his battle not from the attack of disease and sickness like in our country or political enemies or earthly oppressors like the church is seeing right now in Afghanistan. But he fought the battle against sin and death and hell. Praise God. We, we are not to fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and the soul. And yet, Jesus conquered that, so we no longer have to fear that in our life. What happens to the king happens to us. His victory becomes our victory. So Psalm 20 was written to help us not base our confidence and our assurance in ourselves, in one another, not in a church, not in our worship, not in our prayers, not in our cries to God and our pleading to Him, not in our good deeds and not in our kindness. Our only hope in life and death is in the success of God's anointed King and Him alone. The success of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, that is the main point of Psalm 20. So, for those of you who are new with us this morning, we have a tradition through the Psalms of reading through them together as a church. So we're going to put this up on the screen, and if you would, join us as we read through the Psalm together as a church. So starting in verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May he shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Amen. So I want to break this psalm down for us this morning just into two points. The first is the Savior we need. And we're going to see that in verses 1 through 5. The Savior we need. The second part of this psalm, as, as I want to cover it this morning in our message, is the assurance we can have. And we're going to see that in verses 6 through 9. So the Savior we need will be part 1. And part two will be the assurance we can have. So first of all, let me, let me start with this idea of the Savior that we need. And we see that right away with words like, may, God, may the God of Jacob protect you. Again, the message of Psalm 20 is that Jesus, our King, is our security and our deliverance. And David's cry here in Psalm 20 is to provoke this truth in us, as we read this psalm or as we sing this psalm, 
David wants us to feel secure in his king, in, in our king. We don't know, again, exactly what the day of trouble that David was referring to. There was countless battles that David was involved in. But Calvin reminds us that when he says, in the day of trouble, he shows that they will not be exempted from troubles. And he does this that they may not become discouraged if at any time they should happen to be in circumstances of danger. And and I think he brings out a very valid point sometimes, especially for us Americans who just like everything to be good and and for the next generation to have a bigger house than we had and a better job and a a better career and more education than we had, right? We, We have this understanding that things are just going to keep getting better. And then 2020 hit. And everything got put on pause. At best. At worst, you lost a loved one. And we, we hit a day of trouble. And for so many who have this easy believism that everything is going to be great, put your faith in Jesus, your life's going to be awesome, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be wise, you're going to be whatever. This, this is, what do I do here? I'm not used to this kind of trouble. But listen, I want to encourage you this morning. The Bible is very clear that we live in a sinful, fallen world that will be full of troubles. That we should expect them. Hear me clearly. Don't go looking for them, but expect them. And when they come, like James says, we should count it all joy. Because it it grows our faith. It grows our love and our relationship and our understanding with God. So we should expect trouble. Don't be surprised by that, Christian. Don't be shocked by that. It is part of life. Again, we've been lulled into a sense of peace and security in our country for so long. That at any time there is trouble, we are tempted to think that there's some grand conspiracy causing this trouble. No, listen, there will be troubles. They are coming. They are part of our life. It is not a sign that God is disappointed with you. It is not a sign that God doesn't love you. It is just a part of living in a sinful, fallen world. What we do know is that David found himself in one of those times, right? He's in a tight spot. I I don't know what all the details were, and and in some ways I'm glad. Because again, that helps us as we find ourselves in a tight spot from time to time. We we can't explain it away and go, well, it's not like David's. This is is just about a time of trouble. Those moments when we have to cry out and we need him. David is calling on the people of Israel, hey, pray for me. I'm your king, but I'm asking you, pray for me. And they pray, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, Hebrew scholars tell us that this phrase, may the God of Jacob protect you, is literally, may the God of Jacob set you on high. And and that expression is full of military overtones, right? Those of you who are in the military, do you want the high ground or the low ground? You want the high ground, right? 
And, and so the, the nation of Israel is saying, set him up on high. Set him up for a place of victory in this conflict that is coming. So based on this phrasing, the context at least, is that David is about to enter into a battle and the people are praying that the Lord will save him, will set him on high. Defend him, protect him, deliver him in the midst of the battle. And in the face of this dark day of trouble, the people know their king is praying for assistance and help from the Lord. You see, David wasn't that kind of prideful, arrogant, confident king that says, Listen, I got it all figured out. We're good. We're going to be fine, everybody. We got the best military in the world. We can do whatever we need to do. Now, David was a king who was humble enough to say, Hey, pray for me. <laughs> as I'm crying out to God, you please pray for me as I cry out to God. Because he was about to enter into the valley of the shadow of death, and there he must do battle on behalf of not just himself, but the entire nation of Israel. He's fighting not just for his salvation, but for their salvation. And so their desire is clear, isn't it? That, that they want God to answer the king's prayers. May the Lord answer you, verse 1. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, verse 3. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans, verse 4. May, he, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions, verse 5. The king is pleading with God for success. He's offering sacrifices. He's, he's pouring out his heart in petitions, and he's committing his battle plans and his strategies into the Lord's hands. And the people know that their salvation from the oppression of their enemies is entirely bound up with God answering these prayers and sacrifices that the king is making. When he goes out to war, if God will not answer and give him his heart's desire, if God will not give him success, then they are lost. And so they add their prayers to his prayers. Oh Lord, they are praying. Hear him as he prays for our deliverance. Hear and answer him as he seeks for your strength and your wisdom and skill to be able to defeat this enemy. And so they asked the Lord that the Lord would send him help from the sanctuary and give him the support from Zion that he needs in verse 2. And they want the supply of the presence and the power of the Almighty God to, to clothe him, to wrap him, to equip him, to enable him to overcome. Because they see the king as God's anointed. His ordained and appointed representative for their good. You see, in this time of battle and war, David is acting as their representative. They can't all go to battle. They can't all go to war. He is their representative fighting on their behalf for their salvation. And they recognize that. They realize that. So they cry out in prayer. You see a good example of this way of thinking. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, and verse 17, and I'm not going to put it up, but you can go read it later. 
But just a quick summary, there's, a, there's an incident there where David's army actually refuses to allow him to go out and fight with them anymore. Listen to the way they thought about, the king, about their king David. You shall no longer go out with us to battle, they say, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. That's how they thought of David. He is the lamp of Israel. In other words, if your light goes out, then we are all in darkness. The lamp of Israel must continue to burn brightly. What are they saying there? What happens to you happens to us. If you're defeated, then we're defeated. What happens to the king happens to the people. And so once again, here's that basic principle that informs all their prayers in the opening verse. As goes the king, so goes the people. But if God would set his anointed king on high in the day of trouble and send him support from Zion, well, they would be saved too, right? And so they link their joy to his success. And we see that in verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banner. Isn't that a curious way to pray? May we shout for joy over your salvation. Our joy and your salvation are bound together. If God would save you, we will rejoice because your salvation is our salvation. Yes, we want your salvation because we know what that represents. Your salvation would represent for us salvation because you're the lamp of Israel. You are the light. Now, why is that principle important to us this morning? Some of you may be sitting here going, We're, we don't live in the UK. We don't, we don't have kings and monarchs and all that kind of stuff. It's important to us this morning because we too have a king. We have a king, and he has gone to war for us. He's entered into our sinful world, our fallen world, and faced down the enemy on our behalf. And all our hope, all our hope, rests upon his acting for us. He is our representative. That is the very heart of Christianity, folks. That his salvation is our salvation. That his victory is our victory. It's not about what we can do or can't do. It's not about the victories we can win or can't win. It's about his victory. And his victory means our victory. It's not that we can do it. It's not that we have the strength in our own power or, or in our minds to, to think our way out of this problem with whatever competence we think we have. It's not an exercise of willpower to just see if we can hold on long enough. It's not that I can find the joy of my salvation 
by the right combination of religious activities, right? If I go to church and then I, I give some money and I help the poor and I do, if I do all these things and, and I, I get the combination on the lock just right, boom, then it'll unlock and I'll get salvation. It's not any of that. You can do all of that and still be lost. The enemy will still overwhelm and ravage you in the day of trouble. What we all desperately need is an inner cleansing. Not making us look better on the outside, but changing us on the inside. That's, that's something that only Jesus can provide. I can, I can put you in a moralities class. I can put you in an etiquette class. They can teach you how to look good, how to speak good, how to act good. You'll even know what the right fork to eat with. But none of that outside stuff matters if the inside is dirty. We need Jesus to break in and make us clean. We need our sins washed away and our guilt atoned for. And yet so many times, even as mature Christians... We, we fall back into this thinking of trusting in ourselves. We, we think there must be something that, that we must do. Some, some penance that we have to perform before we can be forgiven. Maybe, maybe for some of you, it's just you think, I, you know what, I've got to really feel miserable before I'm allowed to feel joy. Maybe you think you need to Turn over a new leaf before you dare approach God. Maybe that's you this morning. You're sitting here thinking, yeah, you know, I want to come back to God, but I, I got to change a few things first. That is the wrong way of thinking, my friend. We want to take matters into our own hands. It's human nature. Don't do it. I'm begging you this morning. Don't do it. It's a mistake. Listen to Psalm 20 and remember that the joy of salvation is not the fruit of your doing, but the fruit of you trusting your king for what he has done for you. Trusting in the victory that he has already won. And when we do that, we will shout for joy over our salvation. Our joy, our peace, our assurance, our right standing before God, it's not the fruit of our activity. It's not the fruit of our religious dedication and performance or our trying to pay for our own mistakes. Rather, it's the fruit of dependence. The fruit of dependence upon our king who has entered into the war on our behalf and won the victory for us. This is the Savior that we need. The second part of this psalm is the second, the second 
title there is the assurance that we can have. Okay, that's the Savior that I need. Well, how can I be assured that I have him? And we see that in verses 6 through 9. Here, the, the assurance that we can have in light of the Savior that we need has been provided. Remember I said the whole tone changes at verse 6? Like, like we go from plural to singular the people are, are praying together. There's a fervency. There's an urgency. The enemy's coming. God protect the king. But then starting in verse 6, there is a, a confidence and an assurance that we see. Now, I know the Lord saves his anointed. I know. I don't hope. I don't think. I know. That the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Two words there just should jump off the page to you. I know. Not please help, please do it, but I know. Two words every Christian hopes to always be able to say. I know. I know. I'm not ashamed, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 1.12. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able, not that I am able, but that he is able. I know. If you want an example of that in our time, the middle of the night last night while you were sleeping, thousands of Christians got up to go to church in Af Afghanistan. Knowing that if they were caught, they would be shot. And yet, they got up, put their clothes on, grabbed whatever scriptures they had, and went to church, even in the face of death. Why? Because they knew. There's a confidence about their salvation. Verse 6 is a reality in their lives today. Is it a reality in your life today? Do you know that without a doubt this morning? See, we're, we're so fearful sometimes about what might happen to us, it keeps us from worshiping God. They knew what was going to happen to them. And yet they chose to worship their God because they knew their God would deliver them. And that deliverance may not be in this life. But they know their king has already won the victory over death, so they have nothing to fear, even in the face of threats of death. Because for them, their victory is tied to his victory. Their salvation 
is tied to his salvation. They rest on the only sure foundation. Anytime we rest our assurance on any other foundation, listen, it's going to be shaken. Because our foundations, whatever they may be, whatever ways we have put together to create salvation for ourselves, it, it, it's, it's like building on quicksand. Instead, we need to rest it upon our King, whom the Lord has already vindicated. That is the only sure foundation. And it's this kind of assurance that just rings in verse 6. That the speaker declares to the congregation. And as they hear it, they take up the song with a similar refrain. Filled with assurance before their mighty God. Do you see that in verses 7 through 9? Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. But we trust in in the name of our Lord Jesus. They collapse and fall. One, one theologian said of this verse, whenever our minds come to be occupied by carnal confidence, they fall at the same time into a forgetfulness of God. Let me say that again. Whenever our minds come to be occupied by some carnal confidence, in other words, some confidence that we have concocted in our own minds, they fall at the same time into a forgetfulness of God. It is impossible for that person who promises himself victory by confiding in his own strength to have his eyes turn toward God. We must cast off everything which would hinder us from placing an exclusive trust in him. Yet this verse tells us that there are many, right? There are many who trust in chariots and horses. No, no wonder the ground is like quicksand for them. We, we rise up because our feet is placed on a solid rock. It's immovable. It's steadfast. We stand on the victory of our king. Some trust in military might, right? That's what chariots and horses represented back then. Superior weapons, right? It's much better to be with a chariot and a horse than just walking onto a battlefield. You were a lot faster. You were a lot more agile. You could dodge weapons. And it's easy to start to see how they would put their confidence in those things. Nowadays, we might say that some put their trust in their tradition. Well, I've always been to church. I was raised in church. Some put their trust in their morality. I'm a good person. Surely God's going to let me in because I'm a, I'm a good person. Why, why would he not? Some people put their trust in their generosity. Well, I'm always giving. Not everybody sees it, but I'm always giving to other people. And they're, they're putting their faith and their trust in that. But not the true Christian. I, I hope not you this morning. Now, we trust in the name of our Lord God, period. That's it. There's nothing else. 
Now, it's important to understand when we read through Psalm 20, their position in history, right? They are looking forward, aren't they? They're looking forward to when this Messiah, this promised Messiah would come. To what God would yet do, but he hadn't yet accomplished it. They were looking for something at this point in Psalm 20, something that is still in the future. But we're not in that position, are we? We don't pray the words of Psalm 21 through 5 anymore. It's not something we as believers should ever pray. Because our king doesn't stand in need of our prayers. His victory is without a doubt. It's, it's done. His salvation, there is no question about it. You remember how, like David in Psalm 20, on the eve of the battle, our king, the Lord Jesus, he also cried out, didn't he? He cried out from the garden. And the Lord sustained him and upheld him and supported him, even through the nightmare of Golgotha. He went down into the day of trouble, and he waged war against Satan, and he crushed the serpent's hand, head, though it cost him his life. He vanquished death. The scripture says it, is impo it was impossible that death could hold him. And so on the third day, he rose again in triumph and victory. Up from the grave, he arose, as the hymn goes. And there now he sits at the right hand of God with the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. That at his name, every knee must bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our king doesn't stand on the brink of a battle unfought like David did. Our king is seated at the right hand, having already won the victory. And so our position is not the same as those who first sang and read Psalm 20. Our position looks back on the victory already achieved. So we can sing with the assurance of the singers of verses 7 through 9. That, uh, an assurance that they could only imagine. We can sing with assurance of something that they yet didn't fully understand or comprehend. We can sing that some trust in chariots and some in horses, some trust themselves, some trust the world, some trust their wisdom, some trust their reason. Some trust some vague, self-defined form of spirituality. Some trust their own strength from their own perceived, imagined goodness. But not us. Not us. We know the truth about ourselves. We know our weaknesses. We know our faults. We know our frailty. We know our sin. And we know our guilt. And we have no confidence in ourselves. Our confidence rests entirely on Christ and what He is able and sure to do. 
He's able because he has already triumphed. The victory is already won. There is no more doubt. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. We will trust the name of the Lord. We will trust our King. This morning, I hope you are trusting in Jesus. Because he's done it all. It's finished. There's nothing left for us to do. As the classic hymn says, I heard the Savior say, My strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy all and all. Jesus paid it all. Do you believe that Jesus paid it all this morning? That hymn continues, All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, and he has washed it white as snow. That is the assurance that you can have right now. If you will give up trying to make it all work on your own and in your own strength. The psalm reminds us that that is a ridiculous and futile way of thinking. You're not able to. You will never be able to. But the good news this morning, he is able. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you and we praise you for your holy word. We thank you that we can have the same confidence that we see in verse 6 in our lives. The same assurance of the Savior that we need. Because the battle has been won. The victory is his, therefore the victory is ours. Salvation is his, so this morning salvation can be ours. For those who put their faith and trust in his finished work alone. Father, I pray this morning, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, that, that has been trying to do it themselves, they've been trying to to figure out their way to you. God, I pray this morning would be this, the morning that they just stopped and threw their hands up in the air and said, I can't do it. And Lord, they instead turned to you and asked you to do it for them. They would confess their sin, their weakness, their inadequacy, and they would turn to their Savior who has already won the victory and paid the price for all of their sin and put their faith and hope and trust in you. Lord, in, in doing that, they would walk out of here this morning with an assurance of their salvation that they have never had before. And Father, for those of us who are believers, and, and yet we've wandered back into that lifestyle of trusting ourselves, God, I pray that you would convict our hearts so that we would confess and repent and turn back to you this morning. And Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we are reminded that all of that is only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we celebrate that this morning by taking the bread that represents his body and dipping it into the wine that represents his blood. And 
And Lord, that we would celebrate and sing praises as we see in verses 7 through 9 in Psalm 20 this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.